You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm John. And tonight we are looking at the 1950 film, Destination Moon, by George Powell. Yet another in our series of George Powell. Yep. Films. Not that we did the George Powell films, but, you know. We... Anyway, let's do a synopsis of this film. At White Sands, Dr. Cargraves and General Thayer, retired, are about to witness the culmination of two years of work. Cargraves' missile launches and then crashes. Well, that's the end of that project. It was probably foreign sabotage, but this is peacetime and the U.S. military hasn't got enough money to fund weapons research. Looks like it was all for nothing. Darn that peacetime military austerity. Cargraves may be resigned to returning to his much-neglected wife and kids, but General Thayer isn't so easily dissuaded. He's already been run out of the military for his crusade for rockets, and no good crusaders quit till they're dead. He goes to Jim Barnes, head of Barnes Aviation. He convinces him that the conquest of space is absolutely critical for American security and prosperity, that the U.S. is incapable of pursuing a space program, and that only a conglomerate of forward-thinking, high-minded industrialists have the money, brains, and resources to launch a rocket to the moon. Plus, they'll be able to force the government to pay them for the technology when push comes to shove. Forward-thinking, high-minded industrialists are hard to find, unless you have a secret weapon to convince them. And Barnes <laughs> has just that. Woody Woodpecker. The rocket is built in the desert, but a well-funded, concerted effort to foment anti-rocket hysteria among the public is casting doubt on the success of the project. When they are denied permission even to test their atomic motor, Barnes realizes they'll never be given permission to launch. Following the principle that it's better to ask forgiveness than ask permission, they decide to launch the untested rocket to the moon in 17 hours' time. There are more snags as the communications technician Brown gets an appendicitis and they must recruit Sweeney, a man who does not believe the rocket will ever leave the ground, to take his place. As a process server shows up at the gates to serve them a court-ordered cease and desist, they hastily launch. The flight is not without problems, for their antenna gets stuck and they must spacewalk and make repairs. Cargraves is separated from the ship and starts to float away, and Barnes must make a daring rescue to retrieve him. They arrive at the moon. The landing is rough, and they burn too much fuel. Back on Earth, the world unites behind the heroes who took mankind to the stars. But on the moon, they must confront a horrifying truth. They must lighten their ship by over 3,000 pounds, or they will never take off. Stripping away everything that isn't bolted down, and even lots of things that aren't bolted and welded down, plus most of their oxygen, food, water, and the car keys in their pockets, they get within 110 pounds of their goal. The weight of one person. Gargraves, Barnes, and Thayer all argue that they will be the person who stays behind, but Sweeney slips away and makes the sacrifice. When Cargraves can't be the big damn hero and sacrifice his own life, he comes up with a way to save Sweeney by jettisoning Sweeney's spacesuit. They take off for Earth. The end. All right. Um, 
just gonna I'm just gonna put this idea out here before we go any further. All right. Now I don't know what order these are gonna air in because I haven't decided yet. Uh, podcast episodes, but uh, John and I two weeks ago reviewed this same movie, only it was called Salvage. <laughs> right? Did did you? Yeah, did pretty you much. Notice how yeah. much this is the same film with a couple of minor obvious differences. But right, <laughs> yeah. Like, I was I, I'm typing this review up and I'm going like, wait a minute this is so then they they get a rich guys uh, yeah, make it yourself spaceship have to launch before the authorities come barreling in uh, crisis that's going to cause them not yeah. to make it back unless they make sacrifice yeah like yeah right governments out of the space game because it's yep it's not worth their time too expensive not worth the time expensive. Expensive. Yeah. yeah 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 it, it yep. really I'm sure that the guy who wrote salvage was inspired by this gotta be oh more than likely anyway so i take back all that stuff about elon musk and jeff bezos getting salvage as their inspiration it's it's here <laughs> was well, it's probably the book rocket ship galileo which this was loosely very loosely based on uh by by robert heinlein back in 1947 yeah 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 but that had space nazis uh, yeah you know what and yeah, like like putting salt on popcorn, adding space Nazis to a movie just makes it better, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I think it it could have been a a better melodrama. It would have been a different film. <laughs> it would have been a different film. And this was this was, I think, despite all the absurdities about the rich guys and whatnot, this was meant to be dead up serious. Oh yeah, this was a drama. Yeah, not and a factual. Yeah, the factual fitting. drama as opposed to, hey, space Nazis, pew, pew. Yeah, and, and having Dick Wesson in there is the uh, the the, uh, the analog for the, the public, the the viewer, because they don't know what the heck's going on with space. No. What is the space Sweeney. thing? Yeah. yeah, being Sweeney. Yeah, it, it degrades it a little bit, but, you know, what are you going to do? We saw that in, we saw that in uh, uh, Conquest of Space. Yes, With exactly. The, the Lou Costello character. We got to have one ignorant guy on the space journey to ask the dumb questions. It, exactly. It, it's... You know, I think in other movies they used like a reporter to be that person. You know, they ask the scientists, why are we going or how does the spaceship work? You know, that's or sort of... they, they get a companion. Like right, doctor. right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What Somebody is that, get... doctor? Well, yeah. why did you ask me? This is uh, the first... Well, well, debatable. Uh, the first color, not debatable, post-World War II space movie. Well, okay. It's also George Powell's second film, a uh, feature film. He's made shorts, but... Um, right. I forget what the name of the, his first movie was, but it wasn't very good. Something about an animated squirrel and Jimmy Durante. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not... It did not do well. But, um, yeah, it, uh, it's not the first post World War II space rocket because Rocket Ship XM Doesn't. came out first, uh, but Rocket Ship XM was made in 19 days and only came was only developed after they had spent a ton of money promoting this film. Yeah, so they you know they they got into all the major magazines and they they really laid it on thick to build up popular that here comes 
here comes space, here comes factual rocket ship, here comes this amazing adventure that's technically possible. And rocket ship XM thought, hey, good time to slip in there and uh, oh, write well, our own little thing. But it was black and white. So Modern movies do that too. Yeah, if you could make a film in 19 days, which uh much I, I harder think, these days. I think some of the movies by the Asylum people are probably made less. <laughs> Does Asylum still make movies? I'm not sure, but I've seen a lot of their older ones, and it's like, oh, man. Yeah, well, I think they made that, that spinoff Sherlock Holmes movie after the, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock movies came out. That was regrettable. Really, wasn't it wasn't better than the Robert Danny movies? Because no, that seems like that would have been a, oh. a low, low bar to clear. Go hunt it up. If you, if you uh, have a look. If you a dare. really low bar to clear. I mean, there was that one with Larry Hagman as Sherlock Holmes. That one, yeah, yeah, but that was not. That wasn't produced the same time as the the major Hollywood blockbuster came out. No, just trying to set my set my bar for Sherlock Holmes films it's a uh, I don't think I've seen the Larry Hagman one but it does not sound like it'd be pleasurable I don't remember a lot about it but I I do think he wore a deer stalker um sure it was <laughs> modern day I think yeah anyway. even better yeah well that's a tangent so what did you think of uh, yeah. uh I, I keep wanting to I keep getting this in conquest of space confused in my head Justin <laughs> Young. I liked it it was nice I I I enjoyed the, uh, you know, how earnest they were about how their their atomic rocket would work, and uh, you know, which was pretty amazing for back then. Uh, and it, but if you actually, if you think about it, it, it makes sense because the whole atoms for peace thing was starting up, and you know, atomic energy, you know, the, what can't it do? <laughs> Be accepted by the general public. That that would, other than that, could do almost anything. Uh, I... I find the most hilarious part about this when he was explaining, because I've heard of, you know, the atomic rocket ship plans, but usually uh-huh. the ones that I've heard of involved a big, huge shielding cone and detonating <laughs> atomic weapons. Right. Right. Exactly. To, to propel. I've never heard of a steam powered rocket, atomic rocket before. We're going to boil oh, yeah. water and the steam is going to be the propellant. Yes. I honestly never heard that one. That before. Would- that would actually work. Um, problem is, is that steam doesn't have a very high specific impulse because it just doesn't get as hot. That's so what I was thinking. Don't you have as get much, much out of it, but and weighs a lot would. for the amount of thrust that you get. Exactly. That's yeah. Exactly. It just doesn't have have the oomph. You can get it up to about half of what you would get with a. Uh, Hydrogen and oxygen rocket. So, yeah, it would take quite a bit of power. For small okay. stuff, though, like, um, oh, uh, the only one that really comes to mind is the uh, the Bell Jet Pack. And that used hydrogen peroxide, a very high concentration of hydrogen peroxide, uh, being sprayed over a silver catalyst. And that causes an exothermic reaction, which produces large amounts of steam it combines and turns into water uh-huh. and that will produce enough thrust to to fly a guy around but that suits flight time is like 21 seconds the big problem with all this is that you know we're looking back on what they were thinking about they were going to do in 1950 and you know 
and they could not have foreseen the invention of monohydrazine fuel. And so, right. you know, that just made all of this stuff obsolete. So, yeah. Also, if it's a nuclear rocket, um, chances are they're going to be actually, if it, the shielding requirements to make it safe would be very high. So high chance that a rocket like this would probably be pretty hot. Yeah, I don't mean like uh, hot exhaust. I mean like hot for years at the launch site. Quite a bit of fallout. Well, got to scramble some eggs to make an omelet. Of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this film falls into two two sections. Uh, there's the beginning, the, the getting us into space, and then there's the we're having an adventure in space. And let's talk a little bit about on the ground. Okay. The, the whole theme that they come back to again and again and again, and we can talk a bit about Bob Heinlein and some of his politics uh, later on, but <laughs> the whole thing is like uh, they've spent two years, Cargraves launches his rocket, it goes up, spins around, smacks into the ground, and they're like, well, so much for our space program. We failed. It's done. The government can't afford any more of these rocket things. It's peacetime. <laughs> it's like the military is, you know, poor. Like, really? Did did people actually believe that in 1950? Well, I uh, I don't know. I I'm not sure. I I I, I would think not. But then again, especially right time, and I I don't. I haven't read anything that said that they were people were really down on it. And then the, you carry forward the whole idea that it was, it's explicitly stated, basically, sort of, it's explicitly implied. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, uh, that this was foreign sabotage, right? They, they, yeah, they was, raised yeah, the question was, of, yeah, they raised the question of it being sabotage. And then uh, the general then goes to Barnes and again, Barnes raises the question of, or there raises the question of sabotage, and Barnes says, "Well, you should check military intelligence." Said, they're sure, you know, they're sure it's right, sabotage. Now, I mean, that's what he right, he, what he says exactly. He does use the sentence. They said it was sabotage, but I mean, I suppose they could be sure that it wasn't. But that is not how that conversation goes. So somebody is sabotaging this, and as soon as somebody is sabotaging your government's efforts to accomplish something, it is not in the American psyche to go, "Oh well." guess we'd better quit, <laughs> right? I mean, the Pentagon right. doesn't work yeah. that way. The Pentagon goes, now we are going to do this. Fuck, <laughs> I don't right. care how or... sabotage. Right, yeah. But where it gets really weird is, so here's the deal. I'm going to go to you. You are an aviation industrialist, and you know a bunch of other industrialists, and why don't you guys all get together and form a conglomerate of U.S. industrialists and you bring all the stuff because the government doesn't have the brains or the money or the capacity in, in peacetime that you guys do. You are fantastic. Go out there and make this rocket right, and, then, right. and then sell it to the government because they're going to need a rocket because they're too stupid and short-sighted to do it themselves and then you'll have them over a barrel. Woohoo! Rich! Rich for everyone! <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that might be kind of an idealized view of how things work. I I think I think even the the real world works more like the government has an idea and solicits bids to do this stuff. Uh, Yes. 
<laughs> if yeah, right. I think it's been like that for out, a long time. Oh, I guarantee. I mean, all you have to do is to look at the names of the planes, you know, Lockheed, <laughs> and and all the other oh, yeah yeah planes that made they were aircraft, they were done by yeah. contractors. Yeah, you know, think... they always have been. Right, and it's a way of giving money back into your economy and doing it. So, so it's not. They're just kind of saying, okay, you're going to produce a rocket and then the government's going to come in and then start commissioning you to make rockets because... Well, it, I, I would posit that it is implied that once they have this rocket and it works, it will be in the government's best interest, and the industrial know this, government's mm -hmm. best interest to purchase the rocket before uh, the unfortunate circumstances of the plans falling to the agent's hand of a of a foreign power or, or they just sell it to a foreign just power just be flat out sold to them exactly it's like we're exactly. making rockets for the highest bidder who wants to bid exactly yeah i think so I it think is a, that uh, that definitely could be part of it right there <laughs> so you know uh, this based a bit on it's written by some other guys but heinlein was a contributing contributing writer to this thing uh, i don't think it will shock our readers to know that Bob Heinlein spanned quite the political spectrum uh -huh. from the socialist free love advocate of his youth to the right-wing libertarian free love advocate of his old age. <laughs> Where free love is, as in, as it was with H.G. Wells, a euphemism for sex. Not about loving people, it's about Bleeping them. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, that free love sounds so much warmer and comfier. Yeah. And hedonistic uh, abandon. But there you uh, go. Anyway, yes, he shifted. Uh, he shifted over the course of his career. My understanding is just kind of a, a fascinating little backstory. He was married uh, in an open marriage. Uh, okay. And that, that actually is germane to this point and all right. he and his Where wife yeah. this was not this was not because of it's just purient amusement um he and his wife were in an open marriage they had other people involved including l ron hubbard at one time what and they occasionally would bring people in to actually like live with them not just having things and at one point he met this other woman who I think she was a, a lieutenant of some kind in some branch of the military. And he, she was brought into the mix. And she and the first wife didn't get along well. And eventually that led to the breakdown of the first marriage. Now, the first wife was very liberal. And Eiline was very liberal. And they were part of, you know, things for the homeless and feed people and all that kind of stuff. But the new wife was very conservative. Yeah. And even Highline as a statement is like, she taught me the error of my ways about economics. <laughs> and and that was about 1947, 46, 47, 48 was this transition from one wife to another. And and the subsequent wife was also with an open marriage and whatnot. They were all, that part of it stayed the same. It was just, you know, went from the, the liberal philosophies to the conservative philosophies. And uh, so this film is in that, transitioning era for Heinlein where oh, he's, he's going further and further to the libertarian and that's what I'm seeing here I'm seeing this as a libertarian position 
right? You know, just just get on with it and free enterprise and those people, and you know, as opposed to you know proper conservative, which is pork barrel given out to uh, favored corporations who give you money under yes. the table. And well, then you uh, remain in power. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, uh, this this film does feel weird in that respect. It's like, this is just so, oh, though, they're dumb. The, uh, <laughs> the idea behind that is just so stupid is to be unbelievable at this point. But then, you know, subsequently, we've proved that the United States government could actually do a space program. Yes. Which is kind of the premise here is like, yeah, you couldn't do it. It's like, wrong answer. Even the <laughs> government can throw enough money at it and hire smart people. I get well, why I mean, you, would, you would make the argument that says after the war, the smart people are going to go make money in business. Right. There's two reasons for that. One, they can make money in business. And two, you know, there's not as much demand for jobs in the military. But that's why the military uses contractors. Right. And at that time, the I think the government was also scaling down a lot of its uh, agencies and stuff because the war effort was no longer around. So they didn't have to spend all that extra money. And they were getting the the, uh, the appropriations they were with the war budget. So they didn't have the money to spend. So, so I could see yeah. a lot of people saying that, oh, yeah, look, you know, government's not buying anything. So we got to do it on our, our own, guys. We have two options. We can scale down the government or we can uh, fight another war. Right, right. That's a couple weeks off at least. In, in 1950, <laughs> only a bit, yes. Yeah. But, uh, let's see. The uh, Did you... Places where I was watching this film, so like Salvage comes to mind. Another one right. is Jurassic Park. Hmm. Jurassic Did you see which part Park. of it? Did you see which part um, of it? It's, it's Woody Woodpecker. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Jeez. Remember the, actually, the whole I, sequel about uh, Hammond going, oh, spared no expense of family cartoon entry and to explain yeah. the genetics and all this stuff? It's the right. same what kind genetics? of... Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. I haven't seen that uh, movie in like 20 plus years, so... Well, you should. It's quite good. <laughs> Could have more dinosaur decapitations, but, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, all things considered. But, uh, yeah... I, I also was looking at that going, I wonder, I wonder if that crept in. Large to, to it. Yeah. Well, I, I it, that's it. an easy one to go to. I mean, even today, using a cartoon to, to convey a, a complicated idea, um, especially something like genetics, because before Jurassic Park came out, I don't think the idea of creating a dinosaur from from bits and pieces that they found in some some rocks would have been sure. easy for a lot of people to understand. So falling back to the, the, the classic, hey, let's have a cartoon explain it to us uh, is an easy one. But here's the thing. I can't think of many that many examples. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure from the book to the movie, the cartoon sequence was added. And that's not part of the original book. Probably. Right? They don't need to yeah. go into But this is exactly why this is in this film. Because in 1950, audiences didn't understand anything about rocket technology at all. Oh, yeah. And especially yeah. not steam-powered atomic rockets. But, right, right. you know, the, the basic principle. So I can't think of, I can't actually think of too many examples where they have stopped in the middle of a film, shown a group of people a Exposition. cartoon yeah. that is 
really intended for the audience at home to take a technical subject right. and make it and make it simple. No, not not this long. No, it, oh, yeah, I'd have to. Yeah, I'd have to think long on that one to find out some examples of. And, uh, and that. here's the thing mm-hmm. that we, we did not know: we have already reviewed purposes of listeners doing this. I think they've actually been released as well. When worlds collide, and conquest of space. Okay, so those are two other George Powell films. But I found this out today when trying to find out about this Jurassic Park connection. Uh, Walter Lance, who does Woody Woodpecker cartoons, yep, was good friends with George Powell. Oh, really? And in ah, fact, apparently cool. George Powell puts Woody Woodpecker in all his films. Oh. In some capacity, or tries to put them in some capacity. And I'm told, and we haven't done War of the Worlds yet, but we will be doing War of the Worlds. There is apparently a Woody Woodpecker in a tree in, I think, the opening shot of the film. Like when the, the streaks across the sky. So, really? Uh, Going to have oh, to keep wow. an eye yeah, out for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but in this film, it wasn't so subtle. <laughs> yeah. W- what about some of his other films? Uh, apparently, it's a thing he tried to do in all or most of his films. Wait, Worlds Collide? Could be. I, I haven't gone to search out a list of it yet. Huh. It's just interesting. It's, he was such a, they were such good friends um, when he came over from Austria or wherever it was he came from that uh, they, they just... You know, it was it was an homage to do his friend. So, um, and then I, you know, did he do it in the first film where he animated the squirrel and Jimmy Durante? I don't know, <laughs> but this is his second feature film. So he went big with Woody Woodpecker from this point on. So the next one is going to be when worlds collide. No, the next one's going to be, gosh, no, I'm not sure. We'd have to go back and take a look. When worlds collide was fifty one, conquest of space was. 55 so yeah they're all after this one so we'll see we'll see if anybody who's you know has knows where they are let us know where wait find woody find the pecker okay let's see so we have to get off there's oh so here's the thing that never goes anywhere in this film but uh the the sabotage yeah what uh the the concerted effort to turn public opinion opinion against them it, they say it's concerted. It's uh, it's got brains behind it. It's got money behind it. So that Who is it. Would that be the saboteurs trying to do it a more, I don't know, uh, overt way? I, I think uh, that's what they were getting at. But it's like, but who is it? Are they are they foes, foreign or domestic? Is it is it the Soviet Union? Is it other industrialists? Is it or is it anti nuclear? Or is, is it just people in the government realizing, um, this could be bad? Well, I don't think the people who are who are making the concerted effort to to make demonstrations and publications and things like that they they imply that somebody has got this planned concerted effort to raise yeah. public sentiment against atomic energy against their rocket, and oh, yeah. so you know not just the sabotage aspect. And that doesn't strike me as a government program. And so, therefore, I take I take from that that it's these same people that have gone to the courts and said you need to stop oh, yeah. them. Well, these yeah, people put pressure on the, the Atomic Energy Commission and say, well, you can't test that thing; it's too dangerous, kind of thing. Right. So, but you know, it's life saving. I know the government was was very pro atoms back then, 
the whole atoms. They're are very key. big in atoms. Yes. 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 They have a lot of them. There's much mass. Much mass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Particles everywhere. So I, I, I just felt I felt like there was they were missing. So, but there's two things I feel like are missing in this film. One is <clears throat> figuring out what this whole sabotage aspect was specifically, uh -huh. uh, or at least even giving me a hint as to who it was, or and an ending. No, I was going to say, and the second thing must be an actual ending. An actual ending of the film, yes, where they survive. Right. Um, I wanted to see them glide to uh, you know, a landing, but I guess we're going to see something like that until when worlds collide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they hadn't actually worked out the special effects on how to do that yet in 1950. Apparently not. So, uh, which best visual effects Oscar? Oh, yeah. The 1951 I, Oscars? I can, I can see that. They had... Some really good makeup and uh, uh, practical effects for simulating uh, high gravity that worked out really well for him. High, oh yeah, the uh, high gravity and the low gravity wasn't bad. Yeah, low bad. gravity wasn't bad. Um, I liked the uh, the attention to detail when the um, I forget the character's name. Uh, he went into the airlock and he pumped down the air so they could open the door, and his suit started to puff. It's like. Boom. Nice, nice touch. That's exactly what would happen. I gotta say, I didn't see it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, the the suits get a little bit puffy when they're in vacuum. Cool, cool yep. beans. Yeah. Yep. They beat out Samson and Delilah in that year for visual oh, really? effects. Yeah. I probably that's... saw that when I was a little kid, but I don't remember that. I'm movie. assuming that's a Cecil D. De, B. DeMille kind of film. Might have fit. Yeah, it's a big money in that one. Anyway, yeah, that, not um, too many complaints about the special effects, actually. Uh, other than at the initial liftoff, I don't know if there'd be that many sparks and flames if the, the exhaust was steam. I have that. I have that. It's like, wait, if this is a steam <laughs> rocket, then why does that look like flame coming out of it? Kind of yeah. not exactly flame, but you know, pyrotechnics of some pyrotechnics. Kind. We didn't see that when they were lifting off from the moon, though, which is nice. Now the other. Uh, the other thing that was bad, let, just lay it out there, bad from the special effects standpoint. And uh, Chelsea Bonasol was the first to point that out. Yep. Uh, no mud. Yes, there should not be on any the moon. Yeah. There should not be any mud cracks. And he was opposed to that, but the designer uh, insisted upon them. And right. there was a reason for them. It was so that they could give force perspective. Yeah. Yep. That's an easy way of doing it. You know, you get the cracks getting smaller and smaller as they, they go off into the distance and they create. They apparently even used uh, uh, little people in one shot somewhere to create more perspective. Oh, yeah. I can see that. It might have been in, when in they were suits, um, yeah. hauling the uh, that telescope. Yeah, yeah maybe. Be. I'm not sure. I, 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 didn't, back. I didn't notice it. I will say that. But uh, well, it was a good special effect then. I guess so. Felt that like they were a long way away from the ship, or yes. something of that nature. Yeah. Okay. So we have to talk about Sweeney for a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, but we have to talk about Sweeney, which is the character who doesn't know the what he's doing. The Rome. Yeah, and so therefore, proof that being an astronaut just is it just needs on the job training, and you can do it. Yeah. Hey, can we see Brooklyn from here? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there it is. Okay. Unfortunately, he also proves that harmonicas work in space. Oh, he had to leave it behind, though. Thankfully. At least he wasn't terrible at it. No, no. 
It wasn't terrible. And, and doggone it, what was that song he was playing? Oh, I know it was. There was a reason I wrote that down. <laughs> also, is this a Star Trek homage? Or vice versa, this is an homage in Star Trek. He was playing I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. Kathleen, yeah. <laughs> I, maybe that's the song you play in a harmonica. It's the first one in the book. It's, it's I don't one know. Captain Riley sings when he's yep. uh, sogged out on an alien frozen water. But yeah. I don't really. I don't really. It's like, I know that song. I know that song. It's, it's, oh, okay. It's another one. That might be a, a clever uh, Star Trek homage to this film. That's I'm, what I mean. I think, hoping, I think it yeah, might have been. That's it. Thinking that would have been the kind of thing you could have done. Yeah. But it could just be a coincidence. Um, it's the only two places I've ever heard that song in my entire life. But uh, maybe when it's not either sung badly over a PA or on a harmonica, it might sound different. Ooh. Yeah, I've heard it. Who knows? Maybe a half. <laughs> so Sweeney is apparently a, a skilled technician. He builds a lot of the stuff, the communication gear. <laughs> Radio and radar gear. All for, all for uh, Brown, the character who didn't get to go to the moon. But he firmly does not believe this rocket is going to take off. <laughs> it's like, you're hey. wasting a lot of money here. Propulsion is not his his uh, his his problem. So, right. So uh, Brown gets to appendicitis at the last minute because they they got to take off with seventeen hours notice. Right, because they have to make as sure you do when you're when you're on an impromptu ship to the moon. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I love the fact that they are not only are they on an impromptu flight to the moon, but it has to be impromptu at a favorable window. Also, see it salvage. Yes. So they were aware of orbital mechanics because they had to get the use the the computer time to calculate the uh, the right trajectory. Yeah, and doctor computers. Hastings I mean, or... assistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Sweeney gets roped into this. He's like, hey, "How'd you like to go to the moon? No thanks. I got a date tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Smart move. Um, yep. It was priority and then straight. They get it to go. Because he's convinced it won't take off. Yeah, so he's just flattering him. So, yeah, I'll just fine. I'll sit in the rocket and watch it sit on the pad. It's like, or blow up. But, uh... yeah, I probably figured it wasn't. (laughs) Well, what's the worry? They filled the fuel tanks with water. It's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there and get water. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, he's never had one of those pump up rockets that you launch (laughs) as a kid. Water in it. (laughs) But, uh, Probably didn't see anybody pumping the rocket up, and uh, yeah, that's well, what the atomic space. pumps are for. There we go. He goes on the mission, and he's there for them to explain everything to, or uh-huh. us. If only they'd brought Woody Woodpecker along instead. Uh, too bad. First tune in space. The thing is, he said he followed instructions really well, right? Yeah. But then they get to the bit where the antenna doesn't come out, and they go, "Yeah, I greased it up real good." Yeah, they're like, "You what?" It's frozen, you numbskull. Yeah. Would he have really done that if that wasn't in the spec? Well, he he probably knew that having lubrication on an antenna would make it work because he's probably installed countless ones in aircraft. And there you would put something on there. I mean, keeps it sealed against moisture and provides good ability for the physical parts to move smoothly. Sure, he probably would have done it on there. It... it even if it didn't say have anything in there about applying lubricant to it, 
it just might have been, you know, with done without a second thought. That's just what you do. Uh, well, it's lucky he happened. went along. Yeah, exactly. Because if he hadn't gone along, Brown would never have known that the antenna was caked in grease. Right. Right. And it started to outgas and cool down and, and lock up. Yeah. So I, I do know really that the man was, of the hour. I do know that there was a spacewalk on one of the shuttle missions that had to be aborted because somebody had put like six drops of oil in a seal as opposed to one. And there was too much and it was causing a problem with contamination of something. And they had to scrub that part of the mission. So, oh. yeah, little things matter. Yeah, and this flying to the moon by the seat of your pants attitude was a little bit, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also the sequence where uh, they've got the spacesuits designed and then uh, General Thayer brings out, here's the change I made to them, colors. <laughs> and, you know, I'm fine with that, sort of. Yeah. I'll, I'll go in, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But All right. I'm fine with the colors. It's I think Barnes's attitude towards like yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose if you don't mind looking like a circus clown, it's like what is it not manly enough for you, Barnes? <laughs> Could be. It's like it's colors, big freaking yeah, whoop. big deal. What, what is your? Look, yeah. <laughs> it's like no, I want a manly white spacesuit. It's like what? What is it with you? So here's the thing. I don't know. I'm sure you saw that just recently. Here we are in the first part of 2023. That mm-hmm. they uh, they revealed the spacesuits for the the next uh, the moon, lunar missions not too long ago, and they're all orange and black. They're all cool looking and dynamic and and uh-huh. spiffy looking. Which you know everyone looks at this and go cool. Finally, spacesuits that look like they should be in the movies. And then there's like a disclaimer at the bottom. It says the actual ones will be white. Yeah. Because reflective quality of the keeping the suits cooler. Yeah, your thermal control is going to be insanely bad if your spacesuit's black. Yeah, it's like orange with black highlights. Yeah, looking at a picture of it, there's like the cuffs and the legs where the zippers would be to uh, make them into shorts are orange. Cuffs around the ankles are orange. Yeah, everything else is kind of a, a, a flat gray flat black but i'm gonna i'm giving the marketing department of that company because it's a contractor that made the spaces i'm giving them full marks for going space 1999 on this <laughs> maybe it's like you know how to do the marketing arm. you you know how to you know how to put out a spacesuit that looks like what we expect the spacesuit to look cool mm-hmm. and then oh yeah you know so but the military wants to make us dull so we'll do we'll do dull for them if they want dull but you know Doesn't it look great in a press release? Yeah. What it has. There's also, there's a third thing that doesn't go anywhere in this film. What's that? Hey, guys, come here and take a look. There's some radioactive something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Never mind that. We're going to die. Okay. I I don't think that was really meant to go anywhere other than to show that there was a reason to go to the moon. I mean, other than just to mine it for uranium. Okay. It's 1950s. Once again, the whole Adams for Peace. Uh, prospecting for for uranium was big as a, a hobby. Did nobody in 1950 just dream of like go to the moon? I mean, everybody's all sort of like, "Why would you want to do that for?" 
Well, I remember these are industrialists. They have to have a reason, you know, some some financial gain that they're going to get for doing something. It's capitalism, for heaven's sake. I do appreciate the uh, the Texan. That'll put me still a whole bunch of money here. How am I going to sell that to my shareholders? Exactly. And you know something? He's 100% right. And sure. He is, you know, I, I've made this case before, but I, not necessarily in a podcast, but in some ways, shareholders are one of the worst things we've ever invented. Oh, sure. Because, because the, they have to hold to them. Right, and they don't care, right? There, no, there's two no, kinds of investors. Money. There's two kinds of investors. There's the investors who invest in a company because they believe in the company. Uh-huh. They believe in the management of the company, and they believe. It. And then there are the people who invest in it because a broker told them to, or they think it's going to be a short-term return. And of course, your your board of directors and your CEO uh, are, are all 100%. Their job depends upon keeping the shareholders happy keeping the share price up yep. and so when you've got a situation where if you owned your own business for example and you go well i can i can supply this equipment that will get the job done and it will cost less but it will produce more waste or it will have this other thing but you know we can we can make these things for 10 cents a unit and we can sell them for a quarter or I can get this more expensive equipment and it will be, you know, less wasteful and it'll cost us 15 cents a widget, which we can still only get 10 cents for. If you owned your own company, you might look at that and say, yes, this will cost more. We won't make as much money, but in good conscience, I will go with the more expensive option right? because it is better overall. Shareholders don't look at it that way. They don't care. No. They, they're, they are bottom line. It has to be some external factor trying to also become a, a factor in the equation on on whether or not you're actually going to be, you know, well, they're never going to look at the equation. More money. That's, that, right, that's it. They're right. never going to look at the equation. And, you know, look at, look at all the people. And you and I are both, I know you and I are both in some ways guilty of this. Um, you have money, or at least I know you used to have some money in a retirement system that maintains stock portfolios yes still do still do like i would i would absolutely believe that you do you have no clue what stocks they are buying and selling you have no say in what stocks they are buying and selling their sole job is to buy and sell stocks to make money for your account right so they don't care you're the holder you don't care right that just that that i don't care i don't care i don't care attitude works it's all the way back up to the ceo where well like, yeah it, it's what matters yeah. is you know, it's not like owning, uh, you know, you own shares in a company like Apple or something where you personally are vested in that company or you have belief in the products or whatever. The company. It's just it's just money. It's just it's just an investment. And it's mm-hmm. so this guy's got to take that into account. He's got to go to a board meeting and he's got to say, yep, I'm chucking a whole bunch of money in into the moon. And they're going to say, so what's the return on that? I don't know. We're going to get money from the government someday. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So far going up, that's their only uh, hope to recoup any of this uh, financial loss that they're taking is that they can eventually sell it to the government. 
And there, there's no, uh, hey, we might find radio, uh, uranium on the moon. They don't even have there's that possibility. We might, we might do a mineralogical survey and find something exploitable. None of that is discussed right. in that meeting, which is a very odd meeting because half of them are in dinner jackets. Well, they, they're probably going to go to the club or maybe they're at the club. Arch. But did you, you know, at first they were all wearing them. And then as the, as the room got bigger, it's like suddenly there's just guys in suits and stuff. It's like, huh, hey. I, I, I thought maybe this got was warmer. at the club. But now, now I don't know what's going on here. Maybe they just ran out of dinner jackets in the wardrobe department. <laughs> that could be it. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's later in the evening and they're just, I don't know, who knows. But yeah, finding the, the radioactive material on the moon would definitely be something that could be seen as a way to, uh, you know, possibly make some money off this. Yeah, um, Eureka. You know, yeah, it's it, it's our... It's our California gold rush moment. We got there first, and and it's ours. Speaking of getting there first, I, I think it's kind of interesting about the whole, hey, why don't you two guys go down and step on the moon, and uh, I got some stuff to do up here for a while. No, 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 we should all go down. Nah, nah, you guys do it. I'll take care of it later. <laughs> there is that sort of, yeah, this is not that big of a deal. Let's just hop on down, and uh, yeah, all right. It's the moon. <laughs> Yeah. Contrasting that to one small step for a man. <laughs> but, uh, or I, I claim this moon for the name of God and the United Nations for all mankind or whatever he said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, something of that nature. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Did they live? We don't know. We never knew. It's but they might have burned up on reentry because they didn't know that they're going to have reentry. They didn't realize that by cutting a hole in their door of their uh, airlock, they've created a pocket where uh, heat gets in and blows the whole thing up. It could be. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, one of the writers was, I don't know if you saw this, but Rip Van Ronkel. Oh, yeah. It's an odd name. Apparently, it's it's real. I mean, I, I am found great depth on it. The man's name is indeed Von Ronkel. But it's something like Alfred or Alford. Alford and von Ronkel. Yeah. I guess Rip is his nickname. <laughs> yeah, Rip von Ronkel. You, know, you, know, you can't go wrong with that one. I mean, if no, your you last can. name is Van Ronkel, you sure as heck going to have go. Rip as a nickname. That's yes, awesome. I, I, I thought at first I thought it. I thought it was an Alan Smithy. Yeah, exactly. I thought that. I thought that too until I looked at his IMDb. It's like, oh, he's got one. Like, hmm. No, no, if my name were Van Ronkel, I would see, like, no, call me Rip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If Van Ronkel, that's me. Hey. Um, I can't swear to it, but I'm I'm pretty sure that a lot of that was supposed to be White Sands, which coincidentally, White Sands Missile Base is not in the White Sands. It's near the White Sands. Yeah, it's near it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's near the White Sands. Um, so it just looks like desert. So it's yeah. kind of hard to tell. But there is a scene at the beginning when they're testing the rocket, and I have to, I have to put this up. My dad and I used to go out to uh, Alamogordo, which is right by White Sands, and uh -huh. up to Ruidoso, New Mexico, which is up the hills from Alamogordo, uh, from from Tucson. So that means you're crossing across the White Sands, and we do this a few times a year. It's a surprising number of times that we got stopped just exactly like the opening of that film where the military come out, lock down the highway, 
and make you wait for hours in your car. Oh, right. For the missile launches. Yeah, I, I saw that and I go, I think that's actually stock footage of a real White Sands missile base stop because it sure looks exactly like what I remember as a kid. Oh, yeah, probably. Probably. And they don't put toilets out there for you either. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's your hard luck for being on the road. <laughs> yeah. On That'd the be, that highway. Would be oh, man. Yeah, I think I think the worst we ever had was like two and a half hours. Oh, geez. I think we caught it just at the just at the beginning of the lockdown. And then I think there may have been a delay and they held us a little bit longer. And you're just just there in a hot, miserable desert on the side of the road. Did, did, did you see anything go up in the uh in the air? They don't remember you could see a little bit of a plume, but I think most instances when we did this, it never took off. Oh, geez. That they eventually just said, yeah, all right, we scrubbed and let you go. They don't tell you that, but nothing ever happened. But, right. yeah. Considering you can sometimes see them from here in Phoenix. Well, yeah. I haven't seen and, one launched out of, Los San, or out of White, uh, Sands. White Sands in quite a while. No, no, no. I don't think they do a lot out there anymore, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I think they do, I don't know, was it Edwards or? Uh, Vandenberg. Vandenberg. There we go. Vandenberg Spaceport uh, on the California coast. Yep. You know, classic film, seminal uh-huh. film. Um, an important step along the way towards people actually making films where they tried to accurately portray space travel. <laughs> I, I laugh at that, but they were trying. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, they had this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is... There uh, is a little bit of the Little Rascals is like, hey, let's put on a show. It's like, hey, let's go to the moon. But apart from that, it it is, yeah, it is a a, a serious treatment of the idea of going to the moon anyway. Yeah. And uh, And I I think if we wouldn't have had the Sweeney character in there, it probably would not have been um, a movie that people would, would, would would have told other people to go see. It just would have been too boring and dry. Well, uh, I have to say, I could have done without the Sweeney character. I, oh, I me get too. why he's there, but I. Yeah. It's funny because when we put out the uh, uh, Conquest of Space, when uh-huh. that one was released, I know that one's already been out. Uh, Co host Kenneth actually made a comment about the, the character that knows nothing and is yakking the whole time. And when I was recording with him the other day afterwards, I said, oh, yeah, we're doing uh, Destination Moon. And he goes, oh, you know, I was wrong. I made that comment the other day about the guy who knows nothing is doing it. But that, I was wrong. That wasn't that wasn't uh, Conquest of Space. That was the guy in Destination Moon. I'm like, I'm afraid you're wrong. It's both. It's both. Yeah. It's definitely both. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same character, different the, actor. But I think in Conquest of Space, it was also a radio operator, wasn't he? Electronics. Electronics in general. Yeah. Yeah. He was just the guy that did all the electronics, you know. Yeah. He was a TV repairman. Repairman. (laughs) In real life. And he was, you know, doing this job before he went back to TV repair. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) So he he knew where all the tubes went. Yep. Ah, I don't know that I have anything. Oh, you know, Technicolor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful Technicolor film. That was a big deal. Yeah. Which, you know, like I said, Rocket Ship XM was black and white. So this is the first 
color yeah. and the <laughs> the amazing matte work and the matte paintings of uh, Chesley Bonstall. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he design the spaceship as well? I didn't or was that see that else? one way or the other. Okay, it sure feels like one of his. Yeah, I I think, and this would have been like the first classic silver finned bullet into space. Uh, I think um, uh, the the woman on the moon that would just look like a bullet, very blunt, with uh, straight fins under it. Not very elegant looking. That looked very much yeah. like a stylized V two. Strangely enough. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. It's a, all in all, it feels dated. There's just no doubt about it. This film feels more than a bit dated. Well, yeah. I mean, they got some shots inside to... the old Lockheed Constellation plant. So, yeah, you got all the radio motors in the background and airplanes and stuff. So that's kind of dating. You do have to take it in context. For its time, it was, it was definitely, uh, they knew less about space flight back then and... You get right. this is what you get. <laughs> I, I think the movie did a fine job of educating the public into the very basics of, of space flight or manned space exploration. And I have no doubt that there is some kid that tried to launch himself with a shotgun. Oh, undoubtedly. Oh, <laughs> uh, Woody Woodpecker in this. Uh, or at least roller skates were involved and a shotgun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're not blaming <laughs> Wiley Coyote for that. We're blaming Woody Woodpecker in this yeah. film. Oh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I have anything else on this. Uh, no, I think other than uh, the, the the Texas uh, uh, business guy says Texas is the only state big enough for a spaceship. I think he said something, something like that. Like that. And ironically, yeah, uh, uh, 11 years later, uh, NASA was uh, set up in Houston. Houston, yeah, Texas. Ironically. Yep. It's not, not at all like the... Uh, not at all like... Uh, there may have been an important senator and or vice president. That's um, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or future president. Constituent. Was, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Those are how those games played. I don't know if it's next, but we certainly are going to be looking at George Powell's War of the Worlds um, soon. Yep. So we're going to clean the clock and get the rest of the George Powell space epics out of the way. But yep. uh, anyway, John, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash Fusion Patrol or patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at FusionPatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the finale of Crime Traveler with episode 8. The Broken Crystal. When we discuss why you can't go back in time to before you went back in time, the possibilities of using a time machine for committing crimes rather than solving them, and the messages hidden in Crime Traveller which prove the whole thing takes place in an alternate reality. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.